Our scripture this morning is Genesis 1, 28 through 30. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It is so good to see you. So good to be with you. Best time of my week. Let's pray. God, as we're here, we're gathered together around a common confession that we've already sung about, and that is, we are who you say we are. And without Christ, that would actually be a very negative thing, a, a dire thing because of our sin. But you haven't let sin have the last word. You've given us the double cure for sin, paid the penalty and broken its power. And so we come together as those not defined by our sin, but defined by the blood of Jesus because of the good news. You didn't leave us in our sin. You created us. You made promises. You've kept promises. You've sent your son, lived a perfect life that we couldn't live. He died in our place, bearing our shame, paid our penalty, but he didn't stay in the grave. Death didn't have a last word. Death could not hold him. And three days later, he came out of the tomb with our justification and our forgiveness in both hands, never to let it go. You've saved us. You've redeemed us, not because of who we are, because of what we've done. Not the labor of our hands could fulfill your law's demands. Nothing in our hands we bring simply to the cross we cling. Naked, we come to you for dress and you provide abundantly for us. Thank you for the gospel of Jesus. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for your promise that you will finish what you have started in our lives. God, may this good news be the foundation of everything we do. May it be the foundation as we think about who we are and how we are to live here in Genesis 1. Shape us, we ask. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, good morning. We've been in Genesis and we've seen that Genesis 1 to 3 gives us answers to all the major questions of life. What are we here for? Why the earth? Where did we come from? Why humans? And it gives really clear answers, but increasingly they're no longer, there is a time when they may have been, but they're no longer politically correct answers. So week by week, I want to remind us God's way is clear. God's way is best. But God's way is also countercultural. And scripture warns us again and again not to be conformed to this world. So what have we seen? Well, we've seen that the triune God has created all things in heaven and on earth. We saw that there are really two possible options on how we view origins. It's either time and chance randomly acting on matter or the cosmos is created and contingent because God put it here. Then we saw what it means to be made in the image of God. All people are to be treated with dignity and respect because how God has made us. And we saw that he made us male and female. And we saw that God chose us, human beings, to be the means and the mode of his presence and activity in the world. It's really astounding. 
when you stop and think about it. And this morning, now we're going to see he's going to give human, humanity, mankind, two fundamental commissions. What does it mean to be human? Here's the job description. Number one, have offspring. Number two, have dominion. Or we could just say procreation and dominion are my preference. Make babies and make culture. So first, make babies. Be fruitful and multiply. Look at Genesis 1 verse 28. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Notice a couple things before we jump into what it means to be fruitful, something that we could easily jump over. Notice the first thing is that it says God blessed them. And then how does he bless us? He gives commands. The world would have us think that God's commands are a curse, not a blessing. The Bible would say otherwise. God blessed them and then gave them his commands. God's way is a blessing. And remember the Bible, blessing just means happiness. That's what the word means. It's kind of an archaic word, but that's what it means. God wants us happy, but he just wants us happy in him, happy his way. And so he tells us how to be happy. And also notice God didn't speak to the animals. If you've been here, he didn't speak with the animals. He only speaks to us. And also notice, remember, this is Genesis 1. We haven't been to Genesis 3 yet where the fall of mankind comes into play. They're, not per they're still perfect, yet they still need a word from God. Mankind, even in its perfection, still needs God's word. And notice the first thing on the job description of mankind is to grow a family, have babies, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Remember, we've seen that God has created his world, and now what is he doing? He's filling it, and he wants to fill the earth with his presence and his glory. And what is the main means of him doing so? By creating people who will be God-fearing parents, who will have God-fearing babies, who, Lord willing, will have God-fearing babies, and on and on and on. I think sometimes we, modern Christians, have lost this fundamental mission of the way God fills the earth with his glory through Christians who have babies and raise them in the fear of the Lord, who have babies and raise them in the fear of the Lord. And this is why God created us male and female. The way a man and a woman were designed to create babies is nothing less than phenomenal, astounding. A miracle, really, of engineering and cooperation and delight. Y'all know how babies are made, right? I just have to ask. We've got five kids, so people ask us that a lot. Like, you know how that happens? Well, we do. I just want to make sure you know. And I, make some, I may make some of you uncomfortable here, but listen, the church has to be talking about sexuality more. It really is the issue of our day. And so people and children, they are being discipled by the world. So the church, leaders, Christian parents, we've got to be talking more about this. And as I mentioned last week, probably a few years earlier than we think. And so I want to mention a resource here that we found helpful, especially for littles, uh, to begin the talk. That's what it's called, the talk. Seven lessons to introduce your child to biblical sexuality. Really good, really short, basic, uh, always uncomfortable, but needed. And so parents of little ones, I'd recommend, you know, I don't know, six, seven, eight, uh, depending on, you know, what they're all exposed to, but begin the talk early and often. They're going to hear about it. Oftentimes they already have. They need to hear from you and they need to hear from the perspective of God's word. The way God designs the reproductive process is truly amazing. The woman grows life inside her. 
There's really something special about it if you think about it. There's really something special about that glow, that pregnant glow. And it's all God's idea. We've got to remember that. We talk a lot about what not to do when it comes to sexuality. This is God's idea. Sex is God's good creation, a sweet gift given in the context of marriage between one man and one woman covenantly committed to one another for a lifetime. And again, it's his gift. It's his creativity. We talked about God's creativity when it comes to creation here too. He could have set it up any way he wanted. Remember, he created out of nothing. And so the human race could populate in any way he decided. He could have said, you know what? Man, woman, give each other wet willies and multiply. That's how it's going to happen. He didn't do that. He gave us a much more pleasant and delightful way to reproduce. And once again, what's the world's alternative? Atheism, evolution just says all it is is just biological urges and needs and drives that are cut off from God and cut off from really one another. But scripture teaches it's a communion of whole persons. There's really five, at least five purposes of sex in scripture. And that's, that's one of them, no particular order, but one of them is communion of whole persons. Unity, intimacy. Well, we'll see in Genesis 2, one flesh. It's the way he designed it. And so in this act, so much more than merely physical happens. There's a communion of whole persons, which is why hookup culture is a lie. Hookup culture wants to separate bodies from personalities, and it's simply impossible. And those who've lived it know it. Second reason is pleasure. Again, this is God's good gift, his creativity. I find myself limited on what I can say here due to the nature of our audience, so I'll just leave it at that. But pleasure is from God. Third, this one's a little bit less romantic, but it's to keep us pure. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. To keep us victory, victorious over temptation. The fourth reason is uh, service. Really, we could just say love. Because in the Bible, that's what love is. It's giving of self. And so it's a, it's a prime opportunity for a husband and a wife to give of self for the good of another. And then the fifth reason and the fundamental reason we see here in this text is procreation. To have babies. Here in the beginning, foundationally, the goal is children. The goal is multiplication. The goal is fruitfulness. And again, the world's used totally different. And, and part of our generation is new in history in that we, because of the sexual revolution in the 50s and then the birth control pill in the 60s, we can and often do separate the act from babies. But remember, for most of history, those were very, very connected. And that was a good thing. And this is God's will. This is the fundamental reason that he has given us this gift is that we might reproduce and raise God-fearing kids who will raise God-fearing kids. It's his main way throughout history. Yes, we do evangelism. Yes, we do missions. Let's not forget about home, which the vast majority of you will be called to. Let me just ask by a show of hands, who in here was raised in a Christian home? Raise your hands. Wow. Look around, y'all. It was the same in the first service. It's the main way. Y'all ought to go home Call or text, and I forget text, call them. Call your parents and just say, you know what? Thank you for bringing me to church. Thank you for doing your best. We know they weren't perfect, but just thank them because you were exposed to the gospel. You were raised around the fear and admission of the Lord. And if your grandparents are believers, call them and thank them. It's so significant, but our culture has diminished it. Listen to Malachi chapter two, the context of marriage. And he's actually rebuking them for being unfaithful. He says, why does he not? Because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth, 
to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And listen, what's the purpose of marriage? What was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Listen to Psalm 127, verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Alicia and I talk about what we're doing at home is arrow sharpening. Verse 5, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Then on the very next page in Psalm 128, we read this. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Remember, that means happy. Think of contentment. Think of blessedness. Think of human flourishing. How do you flourish? Fear the Lord. It's the way to life. Happy is the one who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Olive shoots were used for all sorts of things. Wood and food and oil. They were a boon to the family. Doesn't mean that unmarried people or infertile couples are lower status by any means. As we'll see here in a few weeks from 1 Corinthians 7, those who are celibate actually have the opportunity and privilege to be laser focused on the kingdom of Christ. But for most, generally speaking, God's will will be marriage. And in that marriage, he commands us to be fruitful and multiply. This is an obedience issue. It's a command here. Of course, this raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? Most of which we don't have time to cover. One would be, well, what about infertility? Infertility is a painful reality. Couples that might desire to be fruitful that haven't been given the gift, haven't been able to. And that's a reality in a fallen world but it doesn't negate the norm. It wouldn't be that way if it weren't for the curse, weren't for sin. It's a fallen world, and so we have troubles and difficult pregnancies, and those are all a reality. But the norm is fruitfulness, and even in those hard situations, there's often ways to be fruitful and multiply, whether it be spiritual children and grandchildren or foster care or adoption. What about the question of contraception? I'm hesitant to even bring it up, but again, the church needs to be talking about these issues. The Roman Catholic Church, historically, I really don't know what they believe anymore. It's hard to nail them down. They've shifted so much in the last 40, 50 years. But historically, they've been opposed to any and all types of contraception. They would say every act should have procreation in mind. Well, as Protestants, of which we are, we've often said, no, there can be wisdom in contraception, using it with, in, a, in a godly way. In other words, all things considered, it may be wise to use certain kinds. The key, though, is that we have a biblical view of the family a biblical view of children. The primary end of the marital union is children. So if your view of children is, well, they're just a hindrance, I'll get to that if we have to, or later let me just fulfill my goals and dreams and vacations and hopes, well, we're probably not thinking very Christianly. So let's not let our contraceptive culture diminish our view of children. Motives here matter. A biblical understanding of the family you're needed. So there's lots of, lots of, Biblically viable options, I'm not going to go into those. I'll let you do your homework. I do feel, I feel led, though, to mention three that I don't think are Christian options. Hear me out. Bear with me. Do some homework. Number one is the IUD. 
I don't think the IUD is a Christian option. Along the same lines, I don't think the, the morning after pill, RU486, I don't think that's a Christian option. Here's why. Those will keep a fertilized egg from implanting. A fertilized egg, friends, according to Christians, the biblical, that's life. That's a new fetus. And so those terminate life. Those two are, are less controversial. The one that's very controversial because it's so popular is the birth control pill. And part of it's just we don't know. This was us. We started using the pill when we were married. We didn't know. And we did a little homework, and I would encourage you to do the same. Here's the problem with the birth control pill. Most of them. There may be some that are exceptions. Again, do your homework. Read the labels. It's always good to read labels on your meds. But there's three mechanisms, and the first two mechanisms are okay, biblically, I think, anyway. My opinion is the first two mechanisms. The problem is we don't know if it does the first two. It may go to the third. And if there's any possibility of an abortive fashion, it's not for me, and I don't think it should be for Christians. Here's what it does. It thins the lining of the uterine wall so that, again, a fertilized egg cannot implant. To me, that's not a Christian option. That third mechanism is abortive fashion. So let me encourage you to just do your homework. Do your homework. If you've got questions, love to talk. At the end of the day, we want to honor the Lord and those made in his image, which we believe happens at conception. Now, if you've been using that or if you come to the conclusion, any of those or any other thing for that matter, I mentioned abortion last week. Here's what the temptation could be is to feel attacked by the enemy. They call him the accuser. And he will take any issue, but especially this issue, and accuse you. Sin to dart your way. And you know what your call is to do there? Raise up the shield of faith. You're justified by faith. You're declared in the right by faith. If you've trusted in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. You didn't know. Now you do. Maybe you did know. And you've trusted Christ and you've turned from it. Here, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Believe that. Stand on that and then continue to walk in faithfulness. Here's how one author puts it. He says, nowhere in the Bible does it say that the use of birth control is sinful. So it's wrong to say that it is. The Bible does consistently say that children are a blessing from the Lord. And it is a sin to say or act as though they are not. So we should be pro-children, pro-family, regardless of our life circumstance. Genesis 1 exhorts us to refuse to be conformed to this unfruitful world. God's desire is to fill it with his glory and his presence through the people whom he has created and their children. That's how he's establishing his rule, through his people and their godly progeny. So whether or not you have kids, all believers should care about fruitfulness. All believers should care about raising up the next generation. So number one, number one in the job description of mankind, make babies. Number two, make culture. Subdue and have dominion over the created order. Look at Genesis 1.28 again. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I've given every green plant for food and it was so. 
So mankind is made. Remember, we're made last. We started with heaven and earth, and then he creates everything, right? He's the sun and the stars and the land and the seas and the living creatures and then the, the, the creatures of the land. And then finally, he creates mankind, and he de- delegates it all to mankind. Created last, and we are to have dominion over all the created order as the pinnacle of God's creative activity, the crown of creation. Josh shared with me this week that around 40% of the world's population are animists. 40%. This is why we do missions. They need the gospel. So instead of having dominion over the created order, they worship the created order. This is Genesis 1. But before we start pointing fingers too quickly, let's examine ourselves here a little bit. Oh, well, we would never worship animals. Well, how do we define worship? It's not just what we do on Sundays. It's how we spend our time, talent, and treasure. Did you know that Americans last year spent $490 million on pet costumes. <laughs> Half a billion dollars. Just think about the missions that would fund. Whew. But we're good. We're not animists. We don't worship animals. Let's just keep moving. It hurts to get kicked in the idols. Here we have... The fundamental commission of humanity, often called the cultural mandate. Here's how one book on culture defines culture. What is culture? It's the divine calling of mankind to transform the earth from its initial natural state to a glorious network of gardens and cities spread out across the whole face of the globe. So we're called to rule and subdue. It's a royal calling that we have. It's vice regency. Not like a tyrant or a despot. We're not abusing. We're caring for like a parent, like God would, ruling the world on his behalf. We reign and we rule and we subdue in a manner that demonstrates that he's the king. We're showing the world what it looks like to live under his rule. And so we're called here to build culture and develop civilization and nurture the world. They started in the Garden of Eden, which was, was paradise, right? It's where it was, it was where they were, and it was beautiful, and it was, it was everything they needed. But the rest of the world wasn't that way, right? The rest of the world was not yet inhabitable. It was not yet hospitable. Eden was the ready-made. The rest of the world was new construction. So Eden really was like a garden sanctuary. It was that place where God specially dwelt. It was the first temple for all intents and purposes. And Adam and Eve are called to have and raise God-fearing, God-honoring babies, and then they would extend the boundaries of the garden further and further out. Having babies, bringing God's rule to bear, subduing and ruling, and the goal would have been that the glory of the Lord would have covered the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. But Genesis 3 put an interruption. So Adam here is this first priest king called to build the temple. And the man and the woman called both to rule the world on God's behalf as his image bearers. The commission's given to both, but as we'll see in weeks to come, they have complementary roles on how it is to be done. The calling to be fruitful obviously plays more to feminine attributes. And the calling to rule and subdue obviously plays more to masculine attributes. So the command is given to both, but in ways that will fit their bodily Uniqueness. What we'll learn again and again from Genesis 1 to 3 is biology matters. And these created norms and these created patterns matter for how we live our lives today. 
The man, we'll see, will lead by working the earth to provide for and defend the family, and the woman will help by giving life and building a home in the territory the man has gained. Ruling and representing God, mirroring and mimicking him. Really incredible calling, isn't it? The God of creator commissioning us to finish and do his work. That's why Psalm 8, the psalmist, as he reflects on Genesis 1, just overflows with praise. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God will rule and he will rule through his people. Again, this is not unbridled exploitation. This is cultivating. This is utilizing the earth's natural resources that God's given us and harnessing its energy and its potential, carrying on where he left off, making societies, building cultures, developing civilization, filling the earth with the general products of, and patterns of human culture, whether it's language or labeling systems or tools or schedules or works of art or family activities, using wood to build houses and make fires and cook clothes, cook food, get cotton for clothes, silicone for computer chips, build cars, fix cars, write books, study nature, produce technology, on and on and on. Listen to how Nancy Pierce describes this cultural mandate. The first phrase, be fruitful and multiply, means to develop the social world. Build families, churches, schools, cities, governments, laws. The second phrase, subdue the earth, means to harness the natural worlds. Plant crops, build bridges, design computers, and compose music. This passage is sometimes called the cultural mandate because it tells us that our original purpose was to create cultures, build civilizations, nothing less. So it's a whole lot more than just farming. I mean, it begins with farming, but it ends in cities, right? Isn't that really the story of Scripture? It begins in a garden and ends in a city, Revelation, coming down out of heaven. I like the way that the message paraphrases this command. It says, prosper, reproduce, fill the earth, take charge. We are God's image, God's ambassadors, God's emissaries, God's co-laborers, tasked to unfold all the potential packed into creation into life-giving institutions. Whatever we're doing, we're managing resources on God's behalf for his glory and the good of the neighbor, whether it's working in the dirt or building spreadsheets. Helping God show off his glory and serve neighbors. God wants his rule to spread through the earth and he wants to do it through us. I love that letter from Jeremiah that we read. Jeremiah's writing to his people that are in exile in Babylon. I wonder what we would say if we were writing someone in exile, knowing that eventually Babylon would be destroyed. We would say, hey, just buckle up, hunker down, no need polishing 
brass on a sinking ship. What does is, what is Jeremiah say, though, here? Jeremiah 29, verse 6. Letter to the exiles. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Have babies who have babies who have babies. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Sounds familiar, right? Multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. On behalf of God for the good of neighbor. The way we've got to view our jobs in part is that we have our job to serve people. Whatever it is. Again, it looks different for everyone in here. Serve people on God's behalf. God takes care of his world through human vocations. So build families, build culture. What does it look like today? Well, this is where you need to view, you need to envision your work in this way. Fulfilling the cultural mandate. Your vocation, your professional work is not some second-class activity just to pay the bills and put food on the table. That's no way to live. Your work is a high calling for which we were originally created. Work has dignity in and of itself. Not just so you might be able to share the gospel there or tithe. You ought to do both those things. But work in itself has value. We learn here from Genesis chapter 1. Fruitful lives and fruitful work. It's what we're made for. It's a good thing. Remember where we are in the story. This is Genesis 1. Genesis 3 hasn't happened yet. Genesis 3 is the fall. This is before the fall, and we'll see it again in Genesis 2.15. Work is pre-fall. It's a good thing. And part of what we got to do is get that right. Too many of us are just working for the weekend. Christians ought not to be that way. Here's how one person put it. He says, most Americans tend to worship their work to work at their play and to play at their worship. Ouch. But we're made to work. We're made to work. If you read the Proverbs, basically on every other page, the sluggard who won't work is rebuked. We're not meant to be idle. We're meant to get after it. Idleness is the devil's playground. Doesn't have a verse, but it's true. Listen to the way Paul puts it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. It says, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness. Seems harsh. It's not when it comes from God, though. And not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. I think that's fascinating. That means part of what he had already sent to the church at Thessalonica, this tradition that they had already received, said, work. Don't be idle. Verse 7, for you yourselves... Know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. Not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So the question for you to ask is, how is your work, or maybe it's your future work, how is it fulfilling this vision? 
and this mission. Bringing into order again, whatever it may be, whether it's the lives of little children, whether it's dirt, spreadsheets, athletes, what is it? Now, again, it's not to say this is not hard. We're in Genesis 1. We didn't read from Genesis 3, but go ahead and flip over a page or two to Genesis chapter 3 where we have the results of sin. We're going to see that our work now is really hard. It's, it's cursed in so many ways because of sin. This is why so many of us have trouble with our jobs. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. After sin, to the woman, he said, notice how the curses affect the man and the woman in their fundamental domains. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. So notice, be fruitful and multiply. Now, the calling that was supposed to give them joy is now tainted and painful. And I think this means a lot more than just pain and labor and delivery. It's certainly that. Can I get a witness? But I think it's the whole process. I saw a dude raise his hand. (laughs) The whole process, right, from infertility to miscarriages to actual literal pain to all the, the heartaches that come with motherhood. It's hard now. Still noble and dignified, still called to it, but now it's a battle. And then uh, disharmony between husband and wife. He says, your desire now shall be contrary to you, husband, he shall, but he shall rule over you. So before, instead of following him, you're going to want to lead over him, but he must lead. And then to Adam, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. So our work is difficult. It's cursed. Being fruitful is difficult. It's cursed. And we're called now to reverse the curse. Fight against it. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Things don't work how they're supposed to work, right? This is why if you ask, there's frustrations in your calling, your vocation every single week, probably every single day. It's difficult. Things don't work how they ought to work. We look out and we don't see us having successful dominion over the created order. My yard's filled with weeds. Went fishing yesterday, didn't have dominion over a single fish. (laughs) This is why you have... These shows, like when animals attack, because humans aren't exercising full dominion over much of the created order. That's why work is hard, and that's why work is so often unfulfilling. But it won't remain that way. Work will be redeemed. It's fascinating how the author of Hebrews quotes that psalm we just read. So Psalm 8, which is a reflection on Genesis 1. Listen to what Hebrews says in chapter 2, verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. It's been testified somewhere, Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That's why life is frustrating sometimes and work is hard. Everything's not in subjection to us yet. 
Verse 9, but we see him, Jesus, the true image of God, the last Adam. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, the incarnation, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So God is in the process, the new Adam, of restoring us, restoring our humanity. And as we're in him, we work with renewed vision and motivation and favor. And one day he's going to come back and restore the whole created order. And guess what we'll be doing? Working. Working, because work is not part of the curse. There'll just be no thorns and thistles. We'll be fulfilled, no sweat of the brow. So... Summarizing here, we finish this first job description. We should see the normativity of family and work. And not just the normativity, but the blessings. They give us purpose. Again, that word happiness. They give us meaning. They give us mission, purposeful existence. Leaving legacies of faith at home and in the workplace. Culture makers. Seeking to bring the rule of God to bear wherever he might put us. That's how one theologian puts it. He says, by filling and ruling over the world, we fulfill our true purpose in life. We reach the heights of dignity because we represent and extend the authority of the king of the universe. So raising kids and grandkids and spiritual kids and spiritual grandkids, building a God-centered culture, pointing people to the Lord at work, starting a God-centered school. This is why we're starting Abilene Classical Academy to take dominion for Christ. Families centered on God, working for God's glory. This is what we're made for. The redeemed people of God to be a model to the rest of the human race, what it means to be a people in the world, living in obedience to the God who saved us. We build families and churches and schools centered on God. We build a community that shows forth his sovereign and wise rule over every area of life. That's what Jesus called the kingdom of God. Here and now, called by God to be a witness to the larger world of what it looks like to live our lives in open and glad acknowledgement of his sovereign rule over all things. Make babies, make culture for the glory of God. Let's pray. God, as I look around this church, I'm so thankful for evident and abundant fruitfulness. Thankful for the amount of children we have here and the amount of pregnant mamas we have here. But also spiritual fruitfulness with how many people are being discipled and shaped and influenced towards conformity to the image of Jesus Christ, what we were made for. So we thank you for your work and we ask for more of it. God, may we be countercultural, increase our view of children, not only our own children, but children in general, Lord. When we see children, may we be intentional to build them up and to encourage them, knowing that they will be leading churches and businesses and schools one day. God, give us a burden for the next generation. Help us to use our time and our resources well. God, I pray for those who are in seemingly dead-end jobs. God, would you do what you need to do? Maybe that's a different calling. Maybe that's a different vocation where they can more fully serve you and serve others. 
lead them and open doors if that's the case, but maybe it's just a change of perspective. God, would you help us all to have a dignified view of our work? As whatever it may be, bringing order out of chaos, subduing areas around us. From our own bed as we get up to budgets of companies to lessons in classrooms to plays for teams, whatever it may be, God, help us to view our work with significance, knowing we're doing what you created us for. May we find fulfillment in seeing others served and you honored in all that we do. Thank you for your promises. Use us. We want to be used by you, so we ask, would you use us for your glory? Receive our praise as we finish our service together. In the name of Christ, amen.